Welcome. This is Mark Compton here for the Southwest Church of Christ uh, Adult Education Program. And we're working through the Bible this year, guided by a study named D6, which takes its title from Deuteronomy 6. This idea of sharing God's word, sharing the message of God in our families constantly in the fields and when we're at home and it's just a beautiful image, and I love the image that they use as they have created the study. Uh, they've entitled D6. It's an op great opportunity for family study uh, and for teaching, and it's the adult ministry. We're sharing this uh, for two purposes. One, for people that are interested in working through the Bible, uh, whether they have kids or not. And two, for those parents uh, who are using the D6 materials each week for family study and teaching, that they'd have a little bit more background uh, that, that may help them uh, as, as they share uh, with their family. So whichever group you're in, I hope that uh, you're enjoying the studies uh, and that it's very profitable for you. Today we're going to be uh, in John 19, which, uh, as you can imagine, we're right here in the midst of a Passover week. And so we're going to study uh, the story of Christ's crucifixion. And John 19 is the passage we're going to be working through. Uh, and the D6 title for the week is The Staggering Sacrifice. And that is absolutely a fantastic title and so true. And just even saying those words, a staggering sacrifice, when you think about what Christ did for us, it's really just beyond our comprehension. No words can truly capture this moment and the impact of this moment and what it's meant for all of humanity throughout all of time. It's our opportunity to be reconciled with God and to be with him eternally. But if I could please expand on that title that D6 has provided, I would add a stunning scene. Because in this passage, John 19, there are several stunning aspects around the edges of the story of Christ's crucifixion, where I'd like to spend a little bit of time there today. You see, we spend a lot of time in these passages as Christians, and each week we remember Christ's death, burial, and resurrection with the Lord's Supper. And in that, I think we sometimes miss the stunning details of this moment in time. I'm certain that we miss the amount of time that this, these scenes around Christ's crucifixion, around his trial, around his flogging, the pain of that, but also the time that was involved in that over a 24-hour time period. So as I walk us through parts of John 19 today, I'd like to note and emphasize some of the stunning scenes in and around the death of Christ. At the same time, I don't want us to miss the staggering sacrifice of Christ for the sins of all humanity, for my sins, and for your sins. The key truths in the D6 material for this week are three key truths that they're emphasizing in the study materials. One is Jesus' own people, the Jews, rejected him. Two, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And three, Jesus' crucifixion fulfilled messianic prophecy. Now, this scene in John 19 is so much bigger and bolder than those three important key truths. And sometimes we take those key truths that I just shared and we move right past this moment 
way too quickly, and we accept them simply as words of fact. But we fail to feel the the impact, to, to feel the emotions around those words of Jesus' own people rejected him. We rejected him. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins in a brutal way. And his crucifixion not only fulfills messianic prophecy, it fulfills God's original design for the reconciliation of sinful people from, from the garden, Adam and Eve, and all the rest of humanity, a path of reconciliation back to God. But let's slow down a little bit today and work our way through John 19. I'll be reading from the voice version as I think it captures the scenes with great imagery and vivid language. Let's start reading in the last few verses of chapter 18 of John, verse 38. Pilate left Jesus to go and speak to the Jewish people. Pilate. I have not found any cause for charges to be brought against this man. Your custom is that I should release a prisoner to you each year in honor of the Passover celebration. Shall I release the king of the Jews to you? Jews. No, not this man. Give us Barabbas. You should know that Barabbas was a terrorist. Now, verse 1 of 19. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted thorny branches together as a crown and placed it onto his brow. And wrapped him in a purple cloth. They drew near to him, shouting, Soldiers now, bow down, everyone. This is the king of the Jews, striking at Jesus. Pilate, going out to the crowd, Listen, I stand in front of you with this man to make myself clear. I find this man innocent of any crimes. Then Jesus was paraded out before the people, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate, here is this man. Chief priests and officers shouting, crucify, crucify, Pilate. You take him and crucify him. I have declared him not guilty of any punishable crime. Jews, our law says that he should die because he claims to be the son of God. Pilate was terrified to hear the Jews making their claims for his execution. So he retired to his court, the praetorium. So have you ever found yourself stuck in an awkward situation with no real good way out, with the only good solution being one that requires great conviction and fortitude, but seemingly not possible to escape from it? And knowing that in the end, you're going to fail miserably and you're going to disregard your conviction, you're going to disregard your beliefs. You're going to lose any strength whatsoever, and you're just going to give in. This is Pilate. Pilate is absolutely stuck. He's looking for any kind of loophole to release Jesus. At least three times he declares Jesus innocent. The reaction each time escalates to a new level of anger from the people and desperation from Pilate. Each and every time his solution backfires, in 1838, he says, I have not found any cause for charges. So he contrasts Jesus to a terrorist, and he offers this terrorist Barabbas to the people and says, hey, which one of these do you want me to release? 
And the people say, we want to release the terrorists. I can only imagine Pilate thought this was a way to get out. He thought, surely, I put a really bad guy. I can get Jesus released. But it backfired on him. So then curiously, Pilate's reaction is to have Jesus flogged. So think about this. He thinks with deep conviction that Jesus is innocent, but he has Jesus flogged. See, Pilate is truly stuck inside of his own system. In his position, he is there to enforce the rules, the laws of the Romans, but also to thread this needle, this 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 narrow road between Roman law and Jews and trying to keep everybody happy. And that's what Pilate does. He tries to keep everybody happy and he fails in truly protecting the innocent. So he's stuck in his system. He has he has Jesus flogged and then in verse four he says, Listen, I stand in front of you with this man to make myself clear. I find this man innocent of crimes. Now, if you're like me, and of course, we're far, far away from this scene. But as I look at this, I'm thinking to myself, so Pilate, you want to make yourself clear and you find this man innocent, but you just had him flogged before you came back out. So what in the world is going on? And now in verse 6 says, you take him and crucify him. I have declared him not guilty of any punishable crime. And then in verse 7, the Jews rebuttal Pilate. And specifically, they say, our law says he should die because he claims to be the son of God. And Pilate is absolutely terrified, it says. And he retires to his court. He's looking for any kind of loophole. And his only way of coping with this moment is to look for a way of respite. And he retires to his court. So let's pick up again here in this last part of verse 9 and go a little bit further. So he retires to his court. And Pilate says to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus did not speak. Pilate says, how can you ignore me? Are you not aware that I have the authority either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus says, any authority you have over me comes from above, not from your political position. Because of this, the one who handed me to you is guilty of the greater sin. Pilate listened to Jesus' words, taking them to heart. He attempted to release Jesus, but the Jews opposed him, shouting, if you release this man, you have betrayed Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king threatens Caesar's throne. After Pilate heard these accusations, he sent Jesus out and took his seat in the place where he rendered judgment. This place was called the pavement or Gabbatha in Hebrew. All this occurred at the sixth hour on the day everyone prepares for the Passover. Pilate, look, here is your king. Jews, put him away, crucify him. Pilate, you want me to crucify your king? The chief priest, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate handed him over to his soldiers, knowing that he would be crucified. They sent Jesus out carrying his own instrument of execution, the cross, to a hill known as the place of the skull or Golgotha in Hebrew. 
In that place, they crucified him along with two others. One was on his right and the other on his left. Pilate ordered that a plaque be placed above Jesus' head. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Because the site was near an urban region, it was written in three languages, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, so that all could understand. Chief priests say, don't write the king of the Jews, right? He said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate replies, I have written what I have written. You can sense Pilate's desperation, his fear, his conundrum. He knows what is right and just, but he just can't escape the system that he serves. Now, I'm not emphasizing Pilate here to make excuses for him or to engender any kind of sympathy for you. Rather, I want you to sense his angst and not gloss over how stuck he got in this moment. Yes, Christ came to die for us, but many failings occurred by many humans along the way, and Christ died for all of them. One of the things here in uh, verse, verse 13, he says, after Pilate heard the accusation, he sent Jesus out and took a seat. Now remember, this is right after Jesus says, you know what? The one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. It's almost as if Christ is trying to make Pilate feel a little bit better, even after Pilate's had him flogged. But Christ kind of understands that this is what has to happen. And all these people that are involved in this theater, in this horrible, terrible scene, that it has to happen this way in order for Christ himself to die. And it says that Pilate continues, and in verse 12 specifically, it says in the, in the Greek that he continuously tries to find a way to release Jesus, but he can't. I like Pilate's last gesture, or we might even say his second to last gesture, which we'll cover here towards the end. But in verses 19 through 22, there's two really important points, I think, here. One is that what Pilate wrote, King of the Jews, was in three languages. See, Christ died in a very cosmopolitan intersection, a very, a very advanced part of the world. And these three languages represented the law, philosophy, and religion. And he died at this intersection of all the languages for all the world. And secondly, what Pilate wrote wasn't cynical. It was his final expression of what, in fact, was true. Now, in the interest of time, I'd like to skip to the final scenes of Christ's burial. And I don't mean to go past his crucifixion at all. But rather, I want to be able to contrast to Pilate of what convicted actions look like, of what followers of Christ do with the actions of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. You see, God positioned two faithful men to prepare the body of Jesus after he died. From the moment after Christ was removed from the cross, only faithful believers touched and prepared Christ's body. I'm starting in verse 38 of chapter 19 of John. After all this, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple who kept his faith a secret, 
for fear of the Jewish officials, made a request to Pilate for the body of Jesus. Pilate granted his request, and Joseph retrieved the body. Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus under the cloak of darkness, brought over a hundred pounds of myrrh and ointments for his burial. Together they took Jesus' body and wrapped him in linen soaked in essential oils and spices according to Jewish burial customs. Near the place he was crucified, there was a garden with a newly prepared tomb. Because it was the day of preparation, they arranged to lay Jesus in his tomb so they could rest on the Sabbath. You see, we, we see here in these verses, first off, interestingly enough, Pilate granted this request from Joseph. But maybe this was his last attempt to rectify his own failing. Just, just a question and observation from me. But I like the fact that he was involved in granting the request and allowing Joseph to retrieve the body. In this part of Nicodemus and Joseph, this moment was very special. Two men identifying themselves as Christ followers, two men with the means and prior preparation to take care of Christ's body. Two men who ensured Christ's body didn't go with the Romans and two men who somehow were prepared to act in the moment to have the proper materials and to have a tomb newly dug out for this very purpose. Wiersbe, one of the commentators I like to reference, closes his comments out on chapter 19 with this tribute to this moment. He states, they boldly identify with Jesus Christ at a time when he seemed like a failure and his cause hopelessly defeated. As far as we know, of all the disciples, only John was with them at the cross. The Sabbath was about to dawn. Jesus had finished the work of the new creation, and now he would rest. It's such a powerful, powerful story. There's, there's so much more involved. There's so many aspects of this. Even Christ up on the, on the Christ, cross, Christ looking down uh, and talking to his mother, saying, Dear woman, this is your son, motioning to his beloved disciple to John, saying, This is now your mother. Just beautiful scenes within the midst of the pain and the few people that were around this scene, standing with God, with Christ in this moment. As he died for all of us. Now, I like, again, I'm going to share with you a few things that, that uh, Wearsby states about this moment of, God, of Christ's crucifixion. He says the cross involves much more than an exhibition of innocent suffering. On that cross, the Son of God paid the price for the sins of the world and thereby declared the love of God and defended the holiness and the justice of God. We are not saved by feeling pity for Jesus. We are saved by repenting of our sins and trusting Jesus, our, our sinless substitute. If Christ was not actually doing something by his death, wrote Dr. Leon Morris, then we are confronted with a piece of showmanship and nothing more. This does not mean that it is wrong for the believer to contemplate the cross and meditate on Christ's sufferings. The familiar hymn, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, helps us realize afresh the price that Jesus paid for us. But we must not confuse 
sentimentality with true spiritual emotion. It's one thing to shed tears during a church service and quite something else to sacrifice, suffer, and serve after the meeting has ended. We do not simply contemplate the cross. We carry it. So as we close this week and we move into and through Passover to Easter, may we remember that Christ's sacrifice was vital. And the scene around his sacrifice was vivid and real. And may we always rise to convictions of godly principles, unlike Pilate. And may we identify boldly with Christ in our daily living, like Joseph of Arimathea, like John, like Mary and the other women, and like Nicodemus. Thank you for your time today. Mark Compton here for Southwest Adult Education. Have a blessed week.